Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week, I am joined by Kate Jones. Kate is the Head of History at the British School Al-Kabaira in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. Originally hailing from Wrexham in North Wales, Kate taught in the UK for six years at Elford High School before relocating to the United Arab Emirates in 2016. Kate is also a lead practitioner specialising in teaching and learning and provides regular training for educators and leaders both in the UK and internationally. Kate has spoken at various educational conferences around the world, including last year at Scotted 2020, organised by myself and my outstanding colleague Fiona Ledbeater. Kate is the author of a series of wonderful books, including Love to Teach, Retrieval Practice, Research and Resources for Every Classroom, and most recently, Retrieval Practice 2, Implementing, Embedding and Reflecting. I was privileged to receive an advanced copy of the manuscript from Kate and we discuss the book at length today in the Becoming Educated podcast. Kate Jones, I'm delighted to have you on the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And I'm delighted to be on here because I am a listener, so it's good. Oh, that's brilliant. Thanks so much for listening. Um, and we're just saying off air, it's been it's been quite some time that I've that I've coveted you to, to come on the podcast. So it's brilliant that you're finally here. Yes. So for those listeners that perhaps don't know much about you, can you share a little bit a little bit about you and your career in education to date before we get into the main section of the interview? Yeah, so I am a current head of history at a British school in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East. Um, But I'm actually from Wales originally, and I did my teacher training in Wales, um, NQT years, six years, wonderful years at a school in North Wales. Um, But I do love to travel. I went on holiday to Dubai, and then that was that. 2016, um, I moved out to the United Arab Emirates, And then I'm a little bit like you, I've got my teaching job, but then I do all these other extra things on the side, podcasts, social media, blogging. Um, And then all of that led to my first book, Love to Teach in 2018. And then 2019, Retrieval Practice, um, which I really enjoyed writing that book actually so much so that I've done a follow-up book that you know about, (laughs) Retrieval Practice 2, which is out at the end of January this year. So really exciting. Certainly is exciting. And I was privileged enough to to get an advanced copy of the book. And we're going to discuss that today um, on the podcast, which is Retrieval Practice 2, Implementing, Embedding and Reflecting. So just to kick us off in, on the podcast today, um, for those that perhaps are not engaged with or, or are sceptical of the research into retrieval practice, could you, could you quickly discuss what retrieval practice is? Yeah, so retrieval practice, even if people aren't familiar with the term, they're probably very familiar with the strategy and the concept of it, which is basically every time a student or anyone has to recall information that is already in their long-term memory, 
it changes that information in the memory, which should make it easier and quicker to recall in the future. And there's been a lot of research into this field for over a hundred years. It's taken a while to get to teachers. The research is absolutely overwhelming that it is one of the most effective teaching and learning strategies. I think for years we've, we have been using quizzing and testing, but we were probably using it more as a formal high stakes type of assessment. Um, whereas retrieval practice should be low stakes, so low pressure, not a formal exam, but it's for a learning purpose to help students recall information with greater ease in the future. So I am really, really passionate about this, not so much because of the research. I love the research, that's really interesting. I'm so passionate after I was trialing re retrieval practice. This was a few years ago, probably about 2016 when I first moved out to the United Arab Emirates and I started reading all about retrieval practice. And I embraced it in a way that I hadn't done before, used different types of quizzing, different types of retrieval. And I did see firsthand the benefits, improved results. The class were confident. I felt confident. It was just incredible. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me to actually see the benefits. And then I started, I wanted to then share it, not just with the students, because I was just sharing it with the students in my history classes. And I wanted to share it with all of the students. So I was doing assemblies, I was creating booklets. And then I wanted to share it with my colleagues and with parents. And it's just gone on from there, the sharing, the writing about it, sharing it online, writing books. So anyone who is skeptical, you, you really shouldn't be, you really need to embrace it. Two reasons, the evidence, the, the research base, but also teacher experience as well. It's incredible. It's, it, it certainly is, and there's such a such a dearth of of um, literature out there, including your your fantastic fantastic books on on the topic. Um, so you write in retrieval practice to a, a quote from Paul Krishna, and you mentioned a little bit in that that response there about evidence, and and the quote highlights the difference between being evidence based and evidence informed in terms of our classroom practice. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I think this is really interesting because some teachers, and I can understand some of the reasons why, are a little bit reluctant to engage with academic research. Um, there's lots of barriers. We're breaking down the barriers. For example, it can be difficult at times to access, but the research is becoming more accessible. It can be difficult to find the time, but lots of schools are now making it a CPD priority. And then one of the other factors that teachers can be quite critical of are the conditions that the research and studies were carried out in, which were not often classroom conditions. Although there's a lot more research carried out in classrooms than people do realize. The work of Graham Nuttall, um, Henry Roediger, Pooja Agarwal, they have actually been into classrooms to find this evidence. But so the evidence-based that um, Paul Kirshner writes about, I love this, um, the evidence-based versus the evidence-informed. So the evidence-based is where you basically are taking that evidence and, and you're just, you're going with that. But evidence-informed is taking that evidence and applying it to your classroom circumstance and context. So it, it's about having this awareness that just because the research says this works, 
um, it might not necessarily work in your classroom because we, you know, I, I'm a teacher in secondary. I teach from year seven to year 13. In my previous school, it was really interesting. The campus was split boys and girls. So I would have year nine girls and I could have next lesson year nine boys, the exact same lesson, but it was never the exact same lesson. <laughs> it was so different. And that was such an eye opener for me in terms of motivation and behavior. So what I advocate and what Paul Kirshner is advocating is the evidence informed approach that with research, it is a case of best bets. This doesn't give us all the answers. We cannot rely completely on it. We do have to consider uh, teacher experience, professional judgment, all of those factors. And for me, it's, I know you, Darren, this is a big thing for you as well. I wanted to work in an evidence-informed school. And there are schools who will take that approach. And the school I'm currently at, when I had my interview, I knew they were an evidence-informed school. And that's why I was applying there. And they also knew a little bit about me and they knew that I was an evidence-informed teacher and it was just a great match. Um, but I have worked in a school that, that doesn't em embrace the evidence and, and, and there's still quite a lot of that. Or what is happening is like what I was, I was a sole teacher reading about retrieval practice and then maybe one or two other colleagues were, but then we went, it wasn't the whole school culture. So there's one thing being an evidence-informed teacher but you really, really need to work at an evidence-informed school. And that's where the senior leaders come in and leaders at all levels. So that's it, yeah, really. It's engaging with the research, but applying it in our own context. Certainly, it's about, it's about being brave enough as a teacher to, to, to experiment and apply it and see what works for you. Because as Dylan William has said yeah. before, that something works um, somewhere, but doesn't work everywhere. So it's about as you said, they're applying to your context conditions. And I love that anecdote about the, the, the girls class and the, and, and the boys class. It's oh, yeah. was... such a fascinating approach. And it brings us on then, um, something that really struck me in the book and, 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 I, and I love is the Kirshner effect. So, yeah. so what, what, what then is the, the Kirshner effect? That actually started off as a little bit of a joke, but now I, I really like it. Um, it started off as a joke just because I, I tended to get into some Twitter spats shall we say uh, arguments <laughs> where I feel really passionate about cognitive psychology and the research and um, I also feel really passionate about challenging things that have been debunked and I, there's lots of uh, you know learning styles is the classic one that still gets promoted but we know it's been massively debunked and a lot of this has been influenced a lot of what I know about research and cognitive psychology and debunking edu myths has come from Paul Kirshner and sometimes I even message him and say look at this tweet <laughs> and he's just like Kate don't you know you can't take them all on um, but this this passion that I have to be evidence informed and to challenge outdated and effective practices I, I just called it the Kirshner effect because this is essentially what Paul Kirshner does he shares what works and he challenges what doesn't work. Um, and there's a lot of teachers out there who feel that way, who feel real. And the more that you learn um, and the more that you read about it, I think the, the stronger you get uh, in terms of your response. I've had to sit in CPD where I've, I've heard things that are incorrect. 
or, or just I think is really damaging and we shouldn't be sharing that information. Um, I do think anybody delivering professional development or training, um, and that can be, I do think teachers are great at delivering that in-house, but it's got to be something that you are knowledgeable and confident with rather than just saying, you know, oh, I was asked to do this and, you know, and just sort of, uh, this is what I, I randomly found. You know, it just shouldn't be like that. It should be, let's look, we've got a teacher in the school. Like, as you can imagine, my school come to me and say, Kate, do you fancy doing some retrieval practice in set? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, they know that I really, you don't have to write a book about it, but they know I'm really interested. They know I've, I've read a lot about it. Um, and yeah, so it's just this, like, this obligation to keep being a better teacher. And, it's, and Paul Kirshner is just quoted throughout my book. So it's a nice little tribute to him. And he actually does like the Kirshner effect. And I hope it catches on because there's a lot of people <laughs> who've been impacted by it, the Kirshner effect. It certainly does. And, and as I said in, in my endorsement for the book, I really love it. And, and I think I'll, I'll become a champion for you with the, the Kirshner effect, especially on this podcast. So thank you so much for that. Um, so let's dive into, into the research on retrieval practice because the book looks at more recent research into yeah. retrieval practice. And your, your, your first one went all the way back and, and looked through the kind of kind of the, the huge volume of research and picked out the key pieces but this one looks at the more recent one so what does the the recent the the latest research into retrieval practice tell us yeah so i decided to classify the latest research was as in the last five years um, and that's simply because in the first book i covered everything from ebbinghouse 1885 the multi model memory and and the work of miller in the 50s and 60s and it's almost, well, it's, it's embarrassing in some ways that a book published in 2019 was sharing research from 1885, but it had been replicated and it was still, it was something that I wasn't aware of from my teacher training. So when it came to the second book, I'd read even more research that I wanted to include that I hadn't written about previously. And this still, I, um, I've been in contact with um, academic researchers. I'm, I'm aware of research happening in the future as well. Some research studies that are looking into certain areas in more detail. Um, so there was a paper in 2020 about ADHD students. Um, it was really interesting. Um, and basically the summary of that study was showing that retrieval practice does work well with learners with ADHD. But I definitely think that is a field where we need more research in. Because yeah. I, I used to just say, people would say, does, does retrieval practice work with children with learning difficulties? And I would just say, yeah, it works for everyone. It was, that's far too <laughs> vague, really. And not just the research, but I went, uh, I reached out um, to lots of experts. I spoke to Jules Dolby amongst Gareth Morwood, others, and they were just giving me such really useful advice um, uh, it was just so helpful to me um, that I hadn't thought of. So I think this assumption that I had was, yeah, 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 it just works. Yes, it works, but there are things that we can do differently. Uh, for example, the main thing that I've taken away from the discussions and the research is some online quizzes have question timers. It gives students 10, 20 seconds. Well, obviously, if you've got students with learning difficulties, retrieval practice is meant to be low stakes. The timer element adds quite a high stakes pressure uh, factor to it. And 
Jules Dobie was just saying we need more time, more exposure to material before you do the retrieval practice, repeat the retrieval practice tasks, perhaps give less questions. Uh, so there was all these sorts of things that I was thinking about. So um, that was really interesting. When I work with schools, um, we have question and answers. But the question that kept coming up was about boys and retrieval practice. Uh, you know, is there a difference? How can we get boys more engaged? There is re a research paper on this with gender and retrieval and space practice. Um, and I reached out to the authors of Boys Don't Try, Matt Pinkett and Mark Roberts. So the research paper basically said no cognitive differences, but difference in attitudes and approaches. We, there's so many times where you read research and sometimes you say, well, I knew that. That's fine. That's just the research confirming your teacher experience where sometimes it will challenge it. So the, the paper was basically saying that they're just the boys were, were less willing um, to embrace retrieval practice in, in comparison to some of the girls. And when I had this discussion with Mark Roberts, who is writing a book later this year, will be published all about revision and boys to try and close the gender gap. Um, his argument in terms of retrieval practice was even if they are aware of the benefits, even if they understand that retrieval practice works better than highlighting and underlining, they still won't use it because they leave their revision too late. Mm -hmm. So then they have to resort to cramming, not they can't do spaced retrieval practice. So then that is really useful for us to know from a pastoral perspective and an academic and how we can help boys to become more organized as well. Um, there's also a difference in terms of confidence. There's the confidence gap and boys will sometimes, Craig Barton's done a lot of work on this. He's got a great retrieval practice course um, and the research, he's got a large um, sample size. Yeah, the boys were, were overestimating. When they asked, they were asked to score how well they thought they did. Uh, and the boys were overconfident in comparison to the girls. So then that made me start thinking as well, is it perhaps the girls' lack of confidence why they are keen to use retrieval practice? And perhaps are the boys just, you know, <laughs> maybe feel that they can recall easily, more easily than they actually can. So yeah, there's, the research in the last few years has been really interesting and the Bjorks are still publishing research, you know, they've been publishing research on memory for decades. And if you go on um, their website, the Forgetting Lab, mm -hmm. uh, there's access, because one of the problems, like I said, was actually accessing the research. Oh, their website is a, a gold mine of just all of these amazing, incredible research papers that are just there free download. And there's quite a lot of recent ones from the last few years. They're really amazing. Interesting, yeah. I'd like to pick up on that on that one in terms of the, the Bjorks because you dedicated a book to the Bjorks and and uh, as you say their their website is wonderful and so is um Pujagar Wells and, and your own one you've got your own blog with blog space with with as much research as possible so in terms of access to the search if you're listening to this then please go to some of some of those ones but you mentioned in the book one of the more recent Bjork papers, um, forgetting is a friend of learning. I thought I found that incredibly fascinating. So can you maybe yeah. tell us a little bit more into to why forgetting is important and, and, and why does that then raise the, the idea that spacing is, is so important for our retrieval tasks? Yeah, the Bjorks have been incredible. The fact that I've just said their website's the Forgetting Lab and they 
titled that paper, you know, Forgetting Being Our Friend, it is about changing our mindset in terms of forgetting. We used to be really frustrated. We would teach something, we felt we'd taught it well, then students would forget it and we'd feel really disheartened. But now we just have to accept that forgetting is part of the learning process. It does not make you a bad teacher. <laughs> it, it's, but that is how I think we've all felt. We felt bitterly disappointed. How can you not remember that? I went over it so many times and I thought that lesson was really good and they just forgot it. So we accept it and we prepare for forgetting, but then we interrupt the forgetting curve with the space practice. Uh, th this is where it does get a little bit challenging with forgetting because teachers will say to me, exactly how long should I wait before teaching content and then doing a retrieval task? And it's just, it's, I, I cannot put a, a figure on that. Um, and when I had a Zoom chat with Paul Kirshner, I asked him that and he just sort of said this, I can't remember, a random Dutch phrase was basically it takes as long as it takes. It was something like, I can't remember how, how long of a man's legs live as long as they need to be. <laughs> and he was just saying it will take as long as it needs to take. And you, this is where you as a teacher use your professional judgment. Retrieval practice is not when you ask someone at the end of a lesson in a plenary, what did you learn today? because that is still in their short-term work uh, short working memory. We, need, we can do that. We can consolidate it and ask, have you understood and what have we been doing today? But actually, we need to take that plenary with those questions and just leave it a while and then ask. It is harder to do it that way. It is challenging. But the Bjorks have taught us with desirable difficulties that that is what the more effort that, you, that is needed, the more effective it will be. So there's, there's so much about forgetting. It, it is really fascinating. Um, and the Bjorks have helped me. And there's been times actually where some of their research papers, I didn't quite understand what they were trying to say. So <laughs> I emailed them and I'm like, this is so embarrassing. I'm writing a book, but they were lovely. They were so lovely because retrieval induced forgetting. Um, I couldn't at first grasp that. I didn't really understand I just, I just didn't get it actually. So, but I put it in an email to them because I'd been in touch with them at this point, and they just explained it so clearly and so well. And and the thing about retrieval induced forgetting is, with retrieval practice, we've got to just narrow it down to what we really want students to know. Too often in a retrieval quiz, we might just stick in some sort of random, interesting trivia questions. I've been very guilty of that. Even not long ago, I was writing, a, a designing a quiz, and I think there were 16 questions, and I wanted to round it up to 20. So I'm just thinking, oh, I'll put in some fun questions. But then I realised what I'd just been writing about. And I thought, no, I'm going to just stick with this, stick with what students really need to know. Um, that's something that we sort of, we, we just tend to put in these irrelevant questions. But then what happens when we do that? is students they will then assume that they do need to know this or they will learn it and then they will shoehorn it into an essay or an answer and that's you know we just need to make sure that they can recall the the absolute essentials so we will end up neglecting some information and then that will be forgotten because you focused your retrieval practice on the essentials but that's okay 
we cannot expect the children to, to memorize every single thing that we say and recall every single fact. That's why when you create a knowledge organizer, it makes you think very carefully, what is it students really need to know? What are the, in history, the key dates, um, the key terminology, vocabulary, concepts, and uh, yes, information will be forgotten, but we accept that. Maybe we just, there's some information we share that is contextual, that is background, that is interesting. We do do that in a lesson. We do sort of go off topic a little bit, but then our retrieval tasks should bring it back um, to what we really want students to know. It's a, such a such a fascinating thing to say because I often go, I think Tom Shenton labelled it off-piste in his book and I regularly yeah. go off-piste, but it's interesting what you say that the retrieval practice tasks are then I need to ignore that and stick yeah. to what the children actually need to know. So thank you for, for that, it's so fascinating. Um, so closing the gap between academic research and classroom practice is clearly a goal of yours and in, in, in what, what you do and the work that you do in the, in the books that you write. And what I found so fascinating in your book is, is that you, you pose a question to, to some of the most brilliant researchers in, in education about retrieval practice. Can I ask you what you found most surprising when discussing what teachers need to know with some of kind of the most foremost education professors? One of the things that was really surprising was actually that they got back to me. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. I was like, oh, amazing. Um, that was brilliant. To hear it from the Bjorks, hear it from John Hattie and Dylan Willem. It was incredible. Um, yes, yeah, so I posed that question because I, I have teachers like yourself feature in my book and in my previous books. But I'm always quoting these academic researchers and I hadn't directly engaged with them. And... Yeah, that was my question. So what is it we really need to know? And the, the conversations were so, they were very different. They were really interesting. So most of them were on email, some via Zoom. Paul Kirshner's probably stood out to me. I know I'm a big Kirshner fan, it's the Kirshner effect. Um, but he, his was completely different to anyone else's. So he's saying, if we really want students to use retrieval practice, they have to see for themselves that it works. Just telling them that it works, telling them that it's a good strategy is not enough. They need to see the benefits for themselves. Like do an experiment where you're doing retrieval practice and then you do something and they can actually see. And this did work because the class that I mentioned when I had in 2016, I took on a year 10 class and we had regular space retrieval for two years. And when I came to take them on at A-level, so I was carrying on with that class, they, their results had been incredible, phenomenal. They just knew that it worked. They were applying it in other subjects. They'd seen that it works. They're now in university and they will use those strategies there. But when, um, I remember 2016, when I was trying to introduce retrieval, space retrieval to the year 12, the A-level, the older students, and they had just passed their GCSE exams, by using highlighting and underlining. So they thought, well, that works. Why would we use retrieval practice? But I was trying to say, but how much time did you have to invest and how much effort was you can use retrieval practice and it'd be quicker and more effective, more efficient. And they were really difficult to get on board. So Paul Kirshner is absolutely right. And I, for years I've been saying, it works, it works, just trust me. No, not enough. So we've got to focus on how can we really show them. Uh, lots of the academic researchers that I've spoken to were 
um, talking about getting the level of challenge just right. Um, because when I do look at online quizzes, there are multiple choice questions from teachers who I don't, I don't know, they're just online. And I think I could answer that and I know nothing about the topic. It's because the distractors, the other options are not plausible. Um, and it is difficult to write a multiple choice question. Uh, I, I wouldn't have said that a while ago, but actually now, when I started to really think about it, the question might not be difficult, but to come up with plausible options and what so many people do is stick in a comedy option, stick in an obviously incorrect option, and then you're basically down to the obvious one that is correct or, or two. So the lot, you know, the Bjorks wrote about desirable difficulties. Henry Roydigger, one of the authors from Make It Stick, said also about getting the level of challenge right. And, and something else um, that really surprised me from uh, Elizabeth Bjork was her frustration that I, it's a frustration that teachers feel as well. Her frustration was that this research and information was not getting into the hands of enough teachers. And as I said, they've been doing it for decades, years and years. They've known this information about memory. And, and in 2020, finally, it, it's starting to become more mainstream. But I can't imagine how, 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 how upsetting that must be for them when they know this is really powerful, but then they still hear about teachers not using these strategies. And the frustration I think teachers feel, especially, well, I've only been teaching 10 years, that's, that depends how you look at it a long time, but if I was teaching 20 years and I'd, I'd only just found this out now, I'd be incredibly quite angry. Why didn't I know this? Uh, why was there such this gap? Um, and Jeffrey Kapicki also wrote about this years ago. He, he said, we have a wealth of information about retrieval practice. The academic researchers have got this information. Why haven't the teachers? So there's this common frustration, but we get in there. We are closing the gap. The fact that I've been able to contact John Hattie in Australia, the Bjorks in California, Dylan Willem, all these people around the world, Pooja Agarwal, and we've all got the same thing in common. We want to help children learn. We've all got that same end goal, whether they're teaching children or not. The academic researchers really want to help the teachers so that the teacher students can get the best possible results. Certainly, and, and so that we are becoming more evidence-informed. I thought that was that was a beautiful part of the book, and, and it's worth buying simply to, to read what the, what, the, what the researchers have to say because as you said there they want the same as us and they want to support teachers and and, and I can um, I can empathize with what must be a frust frustrating for them when they're doing so much work to help teachers and they're not getting it to the front line so let's um let's hope that, that through vehicles like the become educated podcast and, and and your your writing that we can help to inform our profession and become evidence informed so we're going to move on a little bit in terms of talking about the misconceptions and mistakes made when embedded in retrieval practice. So what are the most common um, misconceptions and mistakes when, we, when a teacher tries to embed retrieval practice with their, with their children? There's a lot, actually. I wrote a whole chapter on it. Um, and this was based on a lot of my mistakes as well. Um, and this was also inspired by uh, Professor Rob Coe, who asked about are we doing retrieval practice right? And Adam Boxer has blogged how not to screw up retrieval practice. And I thought this was really interesting because there's one thing to sort of hear, retrieval practice is a great strategy. And then everyone sort of might go, let's jump on it. Let's just do that. But now we've had a few years 
introducing retrieval practice, we were at that stage was let's reflect. These are mistakes I've made, others have made. Um, and I think probably the most obvious mistake, and I feel partly responsible a little bit, is um, just seeing retrieval practice as a starter task. And the reason I, I feel was not solely, but is love to teach. I wrote a whole chapter saying the best way to start a lesson was with retrieval practice. And I stand by that. I do think that is the best way to start a lesson. Perhaps not every single lesson, because you may start a lesson, you've got something you need to talk to with the class, you need to finish off something, whatever. It's just teaching, that's how it happens. But generally, as a classroom routine, that's how I start. And Rosenshine has said regular review, eight minutes at the start of a lesson. But then that sort of got morphed into start your lessons with retrieval practice, spend about five minutes on it, and then tick, that's done, move on. Now, if retrieval practice is one of the most effective strategies that's out there, why would we just dedicate five minutes in a lesson to it? And just dedicating five to eight minutes, still not enough, because are you really dedicating enough time to thorough feedback and reflection? Or are you just sort of sticking the answers up on the board or students just getting a score and not actually looking where they went wrong and identifying the gaps in their knowledge? So whilst it can be used as a starter, and I still think that's a great idea, we shouldn't just limit it to that. And there's no research that I've encountered that says it's more effective at the start of a lesson in comparison to any, it could be used at any point in the lesson. It could be used as a whole lesson. We're having a retrieval lesson today. You can use retrieval practice to, uh, for homework tasks, even if they're not a retrieval task in itself. So a homework task I could say would could be create some flashcards. Now, the creating of flashcards isn't the retrieval, but it's to promote retrieval later on. So that's that's a big one, is just thinking it's just a starter activity. Um, and then also about feedback and reflection. I barely touched upon that in my first book. And that's because I just I didn't spend enough time on it. Um, I didn't I didn't think about it enough. And now that's something I make a conscious effort to think about. Um, and I contacted Michael Childs, who's just uh, his book, The Feedback Pendulum has been published. And uh, I've been lucky to read that. It's really good. And um, there's a there's been a debate about feedback. Do you delay it? Should it be immediate? And I asked him what he thought. And we both agreed that in terms of retrieval practice, the feedback should be instant and immediate. It might not always be possible because if it is a piece of work retrieval that is being marked by the teacher, mm -hmm. we can't do that there and then. But generally, most retrieval practice tasks lend themselves very well to self or peer assessment, or if you're doing an online quiz, it will mark it there and then for you. So it'd be silly to not show them there and then. And the indirect benefit of retrieval practice is it shows gaps in knowledge. So you can immediately see the gaps in your knowledge and then the teacher can spot that, the student can, and then you can focus on closing the gaps there. So yeah, there's, there's lots of things I think we can do with retrieval practice to so just tweak, improve, keep reflecting. Um, it's something I think about a, a lot as well. And I've looked back at previous quizzes and the types of questions I asked. And another one, it, the people might be shocked with this book because it's different to love to teach and retrieval practice in the sense it's not filled with resources. Mm -hmm. The other two books were bam, bam, bam activities. And I really love being creative and task design is important. But I've now shifted where I've got a bank of tasks. I don't need, I don't need hundreds and hundreds of resources. I need 
a bank of effective uh, workload friendly, low effort, high impact strategies. And now I'm focusing on question design. So previously, there was a lot of big focus from me on task design, but now I've got the tasks. Now I'll think more carefully about the questions that I'm asking. And, and that's something that I do speak to teachers a lot about. I say, do you, do you come up with questions with colleagues? Do you ask the same questions in your department? Do you work together in subject communities? You know, do you review and reflect on the questions that you're asking? And do you look what's out there? So I'm really, really interested in question design now. That's such a fascinating one. And, and you mentioned in the book as well, communities, I think it was a geography community yeah, that got together to create that, yeah. that bank of, of questions because I, I like what you say there in terms of, of, of workloading, creating all the tasks, but now you've got such a good, um, well thought out bank, a bank of resources. It's about yeah. getting questions right and kind of linking back to what you said about multiple choice questions and getting the distractors right if we could work as a team and, and, and a subject team to to be able to get the questions out get them right and, and make sure that can I also linking back to what you said earlier on about with the retrieval practice being what the children need to know making sure yeah. the questions are getting the children to think about what we want them to know as well so that's a, that's a wonderful point thank you and um, to, to move on then um why is it vital that, that we explain the benefits of retrieval practice to our students? We've mentioned that, but also, of course, to our parents. And Patrice Bain writes a little bit in your book about the teaching triangle. Can you speak to that, please? Yeah, I, I love this. So Patrice Bain, she co-authored Powerful Teaching uh, with Pooja Agarwal. Um, she describes herself as a veteran teacher. <laughs> I don't like saying that. It makes her sound old, <laughs> but she's not old. Um, yeah, and her book, she's written a whole book for parents. So that's why I felt, actually, we are at that stage where we're working hard to get the students, like Paul Kirshner said, get the students involved. That, that's an ongoing process. Um, I've, I'm doing that in my school. I've done that through creating a guide, doing assemblies in lessons. But actually, the parents are the, the next step. Um, because parents, you know, lots of parents want to help their children. And... The, the retrieval practice is a way that they can do that. They can they can check that their students are their, their children, sorry, are testing. They can be involved with flashcards. And I worked with a school in Northern Ireland, uh, a brilliant school, Carrick Fergus Grammar School, and they sent out a survey to parents which said, "Do you know what retrieval practice is? Do you see your students using retrieval practice?" And the parents are familiar with it and they do understand that because the parents play a really important role in the community. Um, and this teacher triangle, we have these different teacher triangles we have in school. I think teachers need, classroom teachers need to know, support staff need to know, and leaders need to know about retrieval practice. And then in the bigger school community, it should be all the teaching staff, parents and carers, families, and the students. And we all need to get to a point, and we're not there yet, although some schools are, are closer, like the school in Northern Ireland, where it has just become part of the culture, where we're not saying, oh, stop highlighting, stop underlining. They, they know that, um, that they don't have to be told that. They're just, it, it's just a norm. It's just part of their learning routines and habits. So it certainly is. And, and I think it's so important that we, that we involve the parents there. And, and I, I like that, um, that piece from Carrick Fergus going and explain how they did that and how they went about it. So it was a really valuable contribution. Yeah. Um, so given the, the time that we're in just now and, and um, 
most of the UK is now back into back into a lockdown. And chapter three it dives into retrieval practice and remote learning. And we're probably a bit more used to it, used to it and prepared to it given um, our experiences from, from March in, in 2020. So we should be a little bit more ready in 2020, 2021, sorry. So yeah. um, with that in mind, what are your, your tips and, and best bets for implementing, embedding and reflecting on using retrieval practice online? First of all, that was a weird chapter to write. Um, never thought I'd be writing that. And it was challenging in many ways. And I didn't know by the time of publication whether we'd still be doing remote learning or not. But actually, yeah, we all are. Um, but as I've been doing this in the United Arab Emirates since March before the UK. Um, and from March to July was all online. So we... At my school have teaching and learning priorities, cognitive science is one of them, and we kept them the same, but do it in a different context now. And I think retrieval practice with remote learning, there are so many incredible online quiz and tools that I would encourage teachers to try, try a few of them out. It's tempting to just stick with the same one. I love quizzes. Mm-hmm. It's quiz and I double Z. I'm not an ambassador, don't get paid by them, um, but they are brilliant. And I could use that every lesson, but I don't. I do try and mix it up. And imagine that, you know, if a, a student is just going from lesson to lesson or Kahoot, 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 let's try and have a little bit of variety. So there is Quizlet, Kahoot, quizzes, Carousel Learn, uh, Mentimeter. There's so many different quizzing tools out there that I think we should be just, and they're all really easy to use, free, they're great for teacher workloads, so try out as many of them as possible. Um, I have three rules when it comes to using technology for retrieval practice. Um, and the first one is it should be low stakes because that's really important. And I'll give you an example of how it might not be. Um, the second one, it should be workload friendly for the teacher. So quizzes will mark it for you. You can teleport questions from other teachers' quizzes. You can create a quiz in a really short amount of time. The marking is done instantly. It really will support your workload. And then the third one, which is, I think, the most important, well, workload is also very important, but it has to be user-friendly for the teacher and the student. If it's very complicated to use um, and, and just difficult, uh, there, there are a few out there that I've I haven't written about because I've tried and I don't get it. And I think, why don't I get it? And if I don't get it, I'm not going to be confident explaining it to my students. And also, you may, the first time you use a quiz, yes, you may have to explain it and say how it works and be a bit more patient. But then students will grasp that quickly and then it will become automatic. So if I use Mentimeter, which I use a lot, students know to go to menti.com and type in the code. And that's automatic. So then that is not putting the pressure on their working memory so that they can focus then on the questions and on the recall. Yeah, because another bit of advice I would give. So my school, we use um, Google Chromebooks and Google Classroom. Because we were in lockdown from March to June, we did formal assessments at the end of the year on Google Forms. That worked really well. You can use multiple choice, free recall. But they were end of year exams and grades went home to parents on reports. That's high stakes. Mm -hmm. So I said to my colleagues when we went back in September, Google Forms is great, but I think let's stick to that for assessments and then use the Kahoot and the quizzes and all the others for the low stakes. Because students now do associate the Google Forms with it being an assessment. 
Um, and there is that sort of connotation with it as well. And there's enough choice out there that we can say, yeah, right, today it is an assessment. It is a formal piece uh, of work and it's on Google Forms. And then at the start of a lesson, we're doing a, a Kahoot quiz. So that's just about making that distinction between the high and the low stakes. And, and just also some teachers say, no, we've got so much catching up to do. I can't do retrieval practice. Now is not the time to ditch retrieval practice. Now, more than ever, we need to embrace it. And when students return to school, we will use retrieval practice to identify the gaps in the knowledge from this period of time and then close those gaps. So we've really got to, got to just be persistent with retrieval practice, keep it a regular routine, but mix it up as much as, as, as we can with not just relying on multiple choice, have free recall, use different quizzing tools. I found it's quite hard to do a lot of verbal retrieval, um, but there are tools out there. There's Flipgrid, students can record themselves because when you're in a lesson, there's lots of question and answers and discussions and talk to your partner. Zoom lesson is completely different. Um, I, I have been taking ideas, retrieval, and just adapting them for Zoom. I did Cops and Robbers this week and Zoom breakout rooms. And, well, it seemed to work fine with the retrieval aspects. And then they spoke to their peers and they filled it in. So it's just a case of sort of taking things that you've done and seeing if they work. They might not. Don't do it again. <laughs> but there are, there are online quizzing tools that, that will work. Certainly, there is there is such a such a good variety of of different languages and tools, and I love what you had to say there about the difference between the high stakes and the, and the low stakes, and, and using yeah. different different types of the children can in their in their minds can differentiate from what. And, and I also I I really enjoyed that that passionate plea that, that now is not the time to stop using retrieval practice. It certainly is the time to to use it so the children can embed into long term memory the things that they've learned in face to face instruction, and also pick up on the, on the small chunks of information that we're going to give them online as well. So thank you for that. And, and final question of, of this interview section, um, Kate, is, is we're going to chat, chat about the bonus chapter because that really yeah. brings to life the research and the, and the evidence-informed discussion that, that, that precedes it. So what did you learn from these case studies that, that you received from, from a large variety of classroom teachers? Well, I think this is the next step. I did a, a history keynote for SAF, the Scottish Association of Teachers of History. And, and that was all about retrieval practice in history. And I think that's the next step for us all. We Once we've understood retrieval practice, we're introducing it, we're embedding it, then we next now need to look at what does it really look like in our subject and the nuances of it and the... How, how we can really get the most out of it. But I couldn't write that chapter. I wouldn't do it justice because I don't know. I don't know. And that's why I needed you for the PE section. Um, so I thought, right, this is the next step for us as a profession, like the geography case study where they're creating retrieval roulettes together. So I reached out to either people that I've worked with or that I know from Twitter, who I know are using retrieval practice in their subjects. And I think the, the first thing, uh, I've been a little bit guilty in the past of never, not using any practical subjects in, in, in retrieval practice, my previous book. I thought I'd covered most subjects, but actually art, music, PE, design, technology, they weren't there. Um, and maybe even I thought, oh no, 
retrieval practice isn't for those subjects. And that is not true at all. Just reading all your case studies, um, they were they were really incredible about how I really like the design and technology one by Nick. He, he was in my previous book. Um, and, and how he was writing about the, the skills elements of it and the knowledge elements of it. And, the, and lots of the teachers had taken resources that I'd shared from my previous book and were saying, this is how I use it in my subject. And they've adapted it. Uh, I really love the drama example as well. So, and as I said in the book, I think if um, as someone who is an aspiring senior leader, I hope to do that one day, have that teaching and learning role, that will mean line managing subjects that I don't have experience in. But this book could be really useful for senior leaders. Um, if you're trying to support um, a department and how they implement retrieval practice, just having that, and it's just a taster. It's not an in-depth, because you could have that as a book in itself. Mark Enzo probably could write that book, Retrieval Practice and Geography. Maybe he will, because he's written a few. <laughs> I'll tell him to, but his, his is, and Dawn Cox's from RE is, is brilliant as well. But it's just a sort of little, to start the conversation, to get the conversation going. And I love the examples of questions within different subjects. I love Tom Needham's case study about in English and the factual recall and the higher order. And, and I love Jennifer Webb's English as well about the, you know, the myth that you can't have retrieval practice with English language. And it's really, even if you don't teach those subjects, mm -hmm. it's worth reading all of them as well. And the primary example from John, it was just superb. So it was just, I feel so lucky. Uh, I felt a little bit guilty. I called it a bonus chapter because I didn't write it. So <laughs> I could I could claim it as my own, but I'm really glad. I feel like it's really important that it needed to be in there because there's an element of genericism with retrieval practice mm -hmm. in the say, sense of when it comes to learning, we're not all that, we're not all visual or auditory. It's actually, we're not that different in terms of the memory. We're different in lots of other ways. But then when it comes to the subjects, there'll be strategies that all subjects can apply, retrieval practice, but then actually we can apply them slightly differently in that context. So hopefully that'll start a really good discussion. And whenever I'm, I'm doing lots of insets this month in January, and I always sort of say, right, your next steps are in a department and then reach out to your subject communities. That's, we're doing whole school inset. The next step is department level. Definitely. I spoke in a previous podcast with, with um, Stuart Farmer from, from Scotland, and we spoke about the need for subject-specific yeah. um, pedagogical development, and that speaks to that um, um, really truly. And, and, I, and I, as you say, I loved reading some of the some of the reflections from teachers in, in subjects that are so different. I, mean, I teach physical education that an English classroom could be couldn't be any more different if it tried. So to 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 um, read the reflections that, they, that those teachers have, and, and and as you say, I love the uh, John Hutchinson's piece on on, on primary school. It was it was it was wonderful. So that brings us to the end of of our interview discussion, Kate. Um, we're going to move on to a little quick fire round to finish off. But before we do that, can you can you share with listeners? Um, where they can get in touch with you because you've recently changed your, your your handles on social media, and also of course where they where they should go out and and, and buy retrieval practice too, and also retrieval practice and love to teach if they haven't already got that in their library. It's a lot to plug in. Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram 
at Kate Jones underscore teach. That's probably a new handle. But I, I use LinkedIn. I use um, and I've got my podcast, the Love to Teach podcast, and my teaching blog is love to teach 87.com. All of my books are with John Cat. Um, you can get them on Amazon. Retrieval Practice 2 is out January 26th, available for pre-orders. It's doing well already, so that's exciting. And yeah, do get in touch with me. Um, I have lots of conversations, probably now on a daily basis, about retrieval practice. But it was these conversations with teachers that led to me writing that book um, and inspired me to do that. I've also got um, two more books out this year as well, so it's a busy year. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the upcoming books? Yes, um, I can tell you, talk about one of them that I'm writing right now, which is part of the In Action series. So Tom Shelton did his Rose and Shine In Action, incredibly successful. The Ensers have done theirs. Uh, Ollie Lovell did Cognitive Load Theory in Action. So mine is based on Dylan Willem and Siobhan Leahy's formative assessment strategies in action. So that's really different to what I've done before. Um, that's going to be out in, in the spring, well, whenever, whenever I finish it, I don't know, um, but aiming for this year, springtime. Um, and then another book I'm writing, which we'll announce soon, um, I'm, I'm co-authoring that. And it's, again, it's just completely different. It's about school cultures. Um, sorry, I'm being a little bit coy. We might make a big Twitter announcement, but... You heard it here first that I'm co-authoring uh, a book that isn't actually about pedagogy. It's it's a completely different direction, but it's an important book that's needed. Certainly, thank you, thank you so so much for that, and I've, I very much look forward to to your forthcoming forthcoming titles, and as are many many people. So to close the podcast in 2021, I've introduced a little quickfire que- um, series of questions, but they're. The questions are huge, but I want your I want your short, snappy um, yep. answers to them. Um, are you ready? Yes. So, question number one: What makes great teaching for you? Great teachers are teachers that never stop learning. That and and I write about the professional learning gap where you've got the teachers who will plateau, they don't have time. And then you've got the other teachers who are just flourishing and they're reading and they're listening to podcasts and they're embracing CPD. That is the type of teacher that every student should have in front of them. A a teacher who wants to just keep getting better for the students in front of them. Question number two is what one thing would you prioritize to bring about great teaching in every classroom? would be CPD based on that other question. And then actually I'm going to give you two answers, retrieval practice as well. Like just because it's such a good strategy, it's got to be a priority, a teaching and learning priority. Yeah. It certainly has. And the final one is if you could change just one thing in education, what would that be? I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I will. Um, the current government in England, because... <laughs> I'm watching from a distance in the United Arab Emirates and there's all these U-turns and head teachers, a lot of my friends are head teachers and senior leaders and the stress that they are under. Um, we need, I don't want to get too political, <laughs> but there needs to be clearer guidance, leadership. I understand it is a pandemic, it is difficult, but the strain, it's its sad. It's breaking my heart. It's 
different here. We're in a very different situation in the United Arab Emirates. I know Wales and Scotland are very different as well, but seeing the stress and anxiety on Twitter of what's going on in the UK, but it has a knock-on effect because I'm a British curriculum school. So the decision to cancel the exams in England, that means our exams are canceled as well. It, it ha is having a big, big effect on a lot of people. So get them out. It certainly is, and 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 our um our support is, is here for for any teacher that is a teacher and, and senior leader that is struggling because because I don't envy them. No. Um, but that brings us to the end of of the podcast, Kate. It, it's been so wonderful to to have you on and chat with you. So thank you very very much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts. And you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.